Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 1. And we're continuing our study of worship, and what we've been looking at primarily is our main scriptures in John chapter 4, but we're not going to take the time to go there this morning, where the story we've gone over so many times that you ought to know it pretty well by now, um, where Jesus comes out and sits, is going from, uh, from through, passing through Samaria, which was between uh, Judea in the southern part of Palestine and Galilee in the northern part of Palestine, and he stops at this well in Samaria, and a woman comes out, as she did every day. She comes out to do her normal activities and normal tasks, just as we do every day, and she comes to this well and has no idea that this day is going to be different than every other day she's ever had in her life, because this day she is literally going to have an encounter with God. And she didn't know it. She didn't inspect it. You know, often you don't know when you're going to have them. It's not like God sends you an invitation saying, you know, if you show up at such and such a time, I'm going to be there. He wants us ready. He wants us seeking Him. He wants us drawing near to Him. And at His timing, when the circumstances are the way, He'll reveal Himself. And that's what happens here. This woman, but she doesn't know that's who she's meeting with. And we've talked about this as a parallel to when we come to church because so much of the time we don't realize who's here and the potential with what we have here. We come to church, and for each of us, that means something different. For some of you, it may be a wonderful experience. For some of you, it may just be fulfilling a duty. Whatever it is, the wonderful thing is God will meet you where you are. That's what he did with this woman. He met her where she was. She had no idea. She didn't come there to have an encounter with God. She didn't come there to talk to God. She didn't come there to worship Him. She came there just to get her natural needs met. And Jesus used that in his ministry, meeting people's natural needs as a way to draw them to himself. And so he'll meet you where you are. But what he wants to do is lift our eyes up off to where we are to begin to look at him because as we begin to see who he is that is meeting us, we see the potential for what he wants to do. And that's what he does with her. Because he starts out with a simple statement, would you please give me a drink of water? And she says, well, isn't this unusual? You're a Jewish male asking me, a Samaritan woman, for water? And he's begun to get her curious now. He says, well, if you knew who it was that asked you, you would ask of him, of me, and I would give you living water, which would become in you a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. So what he's trying to do is whet her appetite by showing her that, look, there's something, because of who it is you're meeting with, you don't know who it is you're meeting with, but I want to whet your appetite. I want to show you a potential that's here that you don't see yet so that you'll begin to ask for it. And that's where I believe God has us right now. He's whetting our appetite so that we'll ask Whatever it is, God, I want it. Whatever it is you have for us, I want that. I want that living water. I want that that only that satisfies. Only what you have for me satisfies. And of course, ultimately, it's His presence in our life. I know He lives in us in the Holy Spirit, but it's not just that, it's the experience of it. It's the power of it in our lives. Do you understand that Romans 8.11 says that if the same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will also quicken your mortal body? Do you understand that when, when your body's raised from the dead, the power that's going to do that, but the power that does all this is the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead? That's why Paul prays that, that he would have a revelation of the, of, the, of the resurrection power. He says in 1 Corinthians, I didn't come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom. He could have done that. He was highly educated, very articulate. He said, but I've come in the power of the, of the Spirit. And that's what the church is lacking today, is the 
power of God. So what the world needs to see and the believers in the church is the power of God. It's what our young people need to see. Well, they want to know, why do I have to come to church? Why do I come to church? Because the power of God is here to meet your needs, to satisfy the longing of your heart so that you don't have to get it satisfied with drugs or cutting your body or bullying somebody and all the terrible stuff that's going on in the world. There's an alternative out there that is far grander, far more powerful, far more inviting, far more satisfying. There's no hangover from this. There's no regret from this. It's the life and power of God. But my brothers and sisters, it's been here all along in us. Then why aren't we experiencing it? Because we don't know. We're satisfied with what we get. We're satisfied with a drink of regular water. We're satisfied with just a sip. And Jesus is crying out to us saying, I have something for you you haven't tasted before. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I have something for you you haven't tasted before. So I want you to begin to look at me and ask of me. And that's what she did. She said, well, sir, give me that water. So she began to respond, and that's what I sense God wanting from us now. I don't know what it is. I just sense something you have for, me, for us. I want it. I want it. I don't know what it is, but I want it. She began to cry out to him. I want it. I want it. And that's what she did. And that's interesting what Jesus did. He didn't just, you know, touch her, lay hands on her, speak to her. He started talking about her life. He said, well, go bring your husband here. And she uh, kind of lowers her head a little bit, I imagine, and said, well, well, sir, I, I don't have a husband, which was true in itself, but there was a greater truth there, which he knew. And he said, that's right. You've had five. And the one you're living with isn't your husband. So I know you've been a, have a, 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 a disastrous life in terms of relationships, You've had five husbands, and if you've had them, five husbands or wives, there's no condemnation, but you've had a rough time. And that's what he's saying to her. He's saying, and, but now you're, because of that, you've so given up, and you're living in sin, which is really where the world is now. Marriage is not really thought of as a, as a necessary requirement for living together and having physical relationship between a man and a woman. It's, it's just considered not, you know, it's kind of old-fashioned and some people do it, but you don't really need to. Not in God's eyes. <laughs> but she'd come to that, and that's because the world's given up on marriage. What, 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 you know, when, we look, when the world looks at the church and finds that the divorce rate in the church is equal to or greater than the divorce rate in the world, why do it? And that's where this woman was. But notice that's not what Jesus accepted. He dealt with that. He goes right after it and he says, well, because she says, and he said, that's right. And the one you're living with right now, you're living with in sin. And now she realizes she's not just talking to some Jewish male sitting by a, by, a, by a, she's talking to somebody who sees into her life supernaturally. And she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. So what we see here is that Jesus is preparing her for something, but part of that preparation is to begin to deal with her life and the affairs of her life to get them in order. And we went back and we looked in the Old Testament. We saw that when God wanted to meet with his people over and over again, he would start by saying, have them consecrate themselves. When Moses was going to bring them out and meet them in Exodus 19 at the, foot, at the mountain, God came down on that mountain. He said, take three days and prepare them. Have them wash their clothes, have them go, and they were to get ceremonially clean, which means the outside of them was to be clean. 
I was just reading in Numbers where they, God sent them out to, into battle against the Midianites. And when they came back, he said, before you let them back in the camp, they've got to spend seven days outside the camp to get ceremonially clean. They've got to wash their clothes. They've got to wash their skin because they've come in contact with blood and with dead bodies and they've got to be clean on the outside. And that, that consecration and cleanliness was the outside. But the one that affects our worship is the condition on the inside. And so we began to look several weeks ago at what the Bible talks about, what God requires of us so that we're right in His sight on the inside because He's a holy God. He's a holy, majestic, incredibly powerful God. The the power of God, we want the power of God, but we have to understand it's a two-edged sword because it's a holiness. Just ask Ananias and Sapphira who lied about part of the offering they gave and dropped dead on the spot because the power of God was there. So things have got to be right for God's power and God's majesty, God's presence to come in a tangible way. And so we began to look several weeks ago and the first thing we looked at is what's our attitude towards His Word? What is our attitude towards His Word? Is it just a resource we have? Is it a nice thing we have? Is it just, you know, is it a suggestion? Is it something I read because it's part of my routine? Or do we have the attitude that he says he requires, which is in Isaiah, I think it's 61 or 65, which says, and, and, we, and what I desire, he says, is a humble and a contrite heart that trembles at my word, that respects and reverences my word, that when it reads something, realizes that's what I've got to do. I have reverence for it. And then we began to look several weeks ago at this, that one of the, the most important things that that word requires, that God requires. Everything's summed up in two things. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then the second part is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We saw that Jesus commanded his disciples. He didn't suggest. He didn't encourage. He commanded them and he only gave them one commandment. And that was to love one another as he loved them, which means he put their life in front of his. He loved them more than he loved himself. He did what was necessary for their benefit, even at the cost of his own life. He loved, he loved, he loved the men that drove the nails in his hands. Because he said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then we began to look at what God talks to us about in terms of relationships with one another. It's nice to talk about being commanded to love, but where it really hits the road is the where we rub up against one another. And we looked in Romans 12, and we saw about conflict. And we're going to look there again a little bit this morning. And we saw he tells us to pray for those and bless those that persecute you and to do good to those that do evil to you. It's also in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, he says over, don't be overcome by evil, the last verse of chapter 12, but overcome evil with good. And we talked at the end last time about the fact that either the evil's going to overcome you or you're going to overcome the evil. It's up to you. Because if you participate in what somebody else has done to you and you want to get back at them, you're joining in evil. And so that evil will overcome you. There are thousands upon thousands, maybe even in this room today, examples of people that are holding on to some grudge that the person on the other side forgot all about. And the only person that's hurting is you. It's not hurting them. You understand when you refuse to forgive somebody, you're binding their sin to you. And that will work in your life 
that one of the things forgiveness is designed to do is to free you, who's been hurt by somebody else, of the, of the power of that hurt. It's only, you're only freed of the power of that hurt when you let it go and forgive them. And the reason we can do it is because Jesus has done it with us. Because every one of us has hurt him. Every one of us had somehow disrespected him. Every one of us has somehow failed to do what he said to do. Every one of us has done to him infinitely more than anybody's ever done to us. And yet he's forgiven us. He's forgiven. And he didn't deserve any of what we've done for him or thought about him. So we've talked about that, that in order to, for, for, for us to be right in God's sight, we have to be fulfilling that commandment. Now, it doesn't mean you're perfect at it, but we're growing in it. We're committed to it. And that's to love one another, no matter what happens, to love one another. Philippians 1, did I tell you to turn there? All right. But there's another side to this. There's a balance, not in the sense of, well, we're to to love some and not love others. Let me read this. I got so excited about this yesterday because I was just reading in my devotion. I've been this month reading Philippians every day among some other things. And I was reading down in here, and it is just such an example. I can't tell you the hundreds of times I've read these verses. I can't tell you the times I've preached them. And I saw something in here I've never seen before. Because it's a living word. It's a living word. And God wants to speak to you out of this word every time you open it. And I saw something in here that's exactly what we're talking about this morning. So we're going to look in Philippians 1, just in verse 9. This is Paul's introductory prayer. In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. Well, that's what we're talking about. So Paul was praying that the love that you have, and this was a very loving, giving church, that the love that you have may abound, grow, increase. But notice he got specific about it, that your love, that you may... that your love may abound still more and more, but he gets specific in knowledge and all discernment. I never really noticed that before. I mean, I've spoken it out. I probably could speak this by heart. He's saying that you, I, my prayer is that your love for one another would just abound, would just ex- grow and overflow, but also in knowledge and discernment. So there's something needed here as we flow in love towards one another. And Paul is saying what we need is knowledge and discernment. Well, what? Knowledge about the theory of relativity? Knowledge about theology? No, the word knowledge there in Greek is epinosis, which means a full knowledge or full understanding. Sometimes in life there's situations where, where they're complicated. Where, where, where somebody's done something to you and they're just wrong. And now you see, well, I'm commanded to love them, but in the loving of them, do I just let everything go? What do I do? How do I handle that? Does that just mean because we love one another, everything goes? Well, Paul's saying here that I want you to abound in love, but as you abound in love, you need some understanding. You need a full understanding of the whole picture of what's going on. 
So along with the growth in love, we need a growth in understanding about what God wants us to understand about how to handle the situation and what's really going on there. A lot of times when situations happen in our life or in, in the job or even in church, we react. And we either react in our flesh or we try to react in the Word without understanding. And so we go from one extreme to the other without an understanding of what it is that the Word of God says of how we're to walk this out. Now, in the gifts that are given to the church, one of the gifts that are given is a pastor and a teacher. They're two of the five gifts. And actually, in the Greek, they're kind of combined together. One of the purposes of teaching, I'm not just a pastor, but one of the gifts God's given me is to teach, which is basically the ability to take something and break it down into simple pieces so that it can be explained to us, me as well as you, so that now we can know how to apply God's word practically in our life. So if we just hear what we're commanded to love one another, what we get out in real life and we're having to deal with circumstances where somebody's doing something wrong, and now, but I'm supposed to walk in love with them. What does that mean? And Paul's saying, as you abound in love, you also need to abound in understanding, in a fuller understanding, a perspective from God's point of view of what's really going on. It doesn't mean we don't walk in love, but the way we, it means there's an understanding that we need to have in applying that love and walking in that love. I'll give you an example. People take a statement Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount without understanding the context. And we're going to see how context is so important this morning. Where Jesus said, if someone stops you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Does that mean that every time somebody hits you or does something to you, you're to just invite them to do it to you again? That's not what he's talking about at all. And we'll get today into what he's talking about. But see, without some understanding... If we take the word literally, we either think we're in disobedience because we don't do that, or we put, make ourselves a doormat, and then we just let all kinds of things happen in our lives that should never happen. Because I love my children, I just let them do what they want to do. That's unfortunately what the world thinks love is. They will find God doesn't do that with us, does he? Hey, I love you, just do whatever you want. Oh no, he draws boundaries, he enforces those boundaries because he loves us. So we need some understanding of how to apply love in our life in the actual practical circumstances. The next thing he says, abound in, in understanding and in, in discernment is the word actually. What's the word here in the King James, New King James? Knowledge and all discernment. That word discernment is a word in Greek that means a moral sensitivity, a sensitivity to what's right and wrong. So not only are we to abound in love, but in the process of abounding in love, we're also, he's praying that they would also gain with that a full understanding of what's going on and also the ability to discern right from wrong. So apparently, while we love one another, we're not to throw out the boundaries of what's right and wrong. Look at the next verse, because it makes that very clear. That you may approve the things that are excellent. So somehow, we're responsible for approving certain things, which implies for disapproving other things. 
to approving things that are excellent. Why? That you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. That becomes important to what we're going to learn how to do. What we're going to learn today is what the, how to discern between what we're supposed to judge and what we're not supposed to judge. Because if you look up judging in, the, in some concordance, you'll find there are all kinds of places where it's don't judge. And then you turn around and find places where he tells us to judge. Well, God's not confused. And so what we're going to, by God's grace, gain today, I trust, is some fuller understanding of what God's saying to us here. And here's one of the keys. Notice that we not only abound in love, but in the process we also grow in our, in our fuller understanding of what we're supposed to do and develop moral discernment so that we know how to approve what's excellent from what's not excellent so that we may be sincere and approved in the day of Christ. So there's a focus for where we are to make discernments, where to make judgments. There's a focus and a purpose for it. Where we're not the judge, there's a focus and purpose that we're not to enter into, we're not to participate in. And that'll become clear to you as we go on with this. So that's where we're headed today. That's why this is important. You very rarely hear this when you hear teaching on love. You just hear we're supposed to love. When that's true, we are and hold nothing back. But that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. All right. Let's go now to Romans chapter 12, where we left off last time. And as we mentioned last week, it starts by talking that we're supposed to make a living sacrifice of our body, which is our acceptable service. And then verse 2, which we spent a lot of time this year on Wednesday nights, is about renewing your mind so that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, the rest of chapter 12 and a good part of chapter 13 is to tell us things to renew our mind too. So we looked at last week at verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. But go down to verse 17 because here's the key to it. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much depends on you, as much depends on you, and if possible, live peaceably with all men. You'll find there's some you can't live peaceably with. But from your side, you can be peaceable. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath. Some translations say give place to God's wrath, which I think is what it's talking about there. In other words, we'll, we'll explain in a minute. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. This is what we referred to earlier. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Here's the first example of what we're not to judge. Somebody does something against you. He's saying, don't get back at them. Because notice, all this is focused on you're doing something to get back at them for what they did to you, called revenge. And revenge in God's eyes by one of us is sin. It's wrong. Why? 
We're going to see in a minute. Because God's the only one that has the right to do that. So the correct, correct response when somebody's done something to you and it just gets your goat, it gets under your skin, you just, is to put them into God's hands because it's up to Him what He does with them, not up to you. But the whole context here is to not revenge what's been done to you, not to repay evil with evil. That's the context here. So if you don't look at the context here, you just see that and say, well, I, you know, I just have to be a doormat. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying it's never a right response to somebody doing evil to you to try to get even with them by doing evil back. You ever notice if you do that, you don't get even anyway? Because now they do something back to you and then you've got to escalate it and do something back to them. And somewhere down the line, you forget what the original thing was that they did to you and you did to them. You just got to get back at them for what they just did to you and get even. And you never get, it never gets even. It always keeps going up. It actually keeps going down. And I've never been, I just somehow in my nature, I'm not a vengeful person. I let things go pretty easily. But the things that, the, the few things that really get under my skin is when I see somebody's getting away with something and other people can't see it. It's just, I just you know, there's a, there's a righteousness that rises up in me and I want to take it into my hands and make sure everybody knows what they're doing wrong because they can't see it. And I've had to come and learn that's God's business, not mine. God's very good at exposing things or hiding things. Let me ask you, because... There are things about... I, don't, I wouldn't want everything exposed in my whole life that I've ever done or said or thought. Would you? All right. So it's not my job to go around exposing people. It's not my job to go around getting even. Even See, we dress it up, make it look nice and righteous, but Lord, they're hurting other people. Unless God's given me an assignment about that, that's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to love them. Love doesn't mean I'm a doormat but love means I don't get back at them. Because if you look in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is ultimately talking about is that we're to, be, we're to do these things so that we be like our Father who's in heaven, so that we act more like Him, more like Christ. So one of the questions is, what would Christ do in this situation? Well, what did He do in your life? Did He get even with you? No, He laid His life down for you. And sometimes laying our life down isn't our physical life. Sometimes laying our life down is the right we think we have to get even. Sometimes what we're letting to let go of, to laying down for Him, is, is, is something somebody's done to us. And just lay it down for Christ's sake. Lay it down for His sake. Bring it to the cross and make it as an offering to Him. It's up to you what you do with them for what they've done to me. In fact, then what you need to do is pray for them. Amen. Forgive them for what they've done. Don't hold it again. And boy, that's hard. It's one thing to say, Lord, here it is, but get them! Because you can do a better job than I can. Plagues, come down. All the, oh, you know, may the ground open up and swallow them before the plague destroys their flesh. And the fire comes down out of heaven. Use anyone you want. Use them all, God. Let's get them up. He says, vengeance is mine. That's right, it's his. To decide how, whether, or when he wants to use it. It will add years to your life Amen. if you will let it go. Amen. We learned last week 
that there are certain blessings with obeying these things. One of them is health. Because in Deuteronomy 7, he says, If you will obey the words of my commandment and do what is right in my sight, then I will remove sickness from the midst of you. And in chapter 13, he says, When we walk in love, we fulfill the law. So you've got a right to go to that scripture and say, I'm walking in love. You've got to remove sickness and disease from my midst. And I believe the reason a lot of people are struggling with sickness and disease, not everybody, is because maybe, this may be, they're not walking in the commandment that he's commanded us to walk in. The founder of the Bible school I went to, Brother Hagen, he's known as an apostle of faith, but he was far more an apostle of love. I've seen him handle situations where people in a, in a crowd of a thousand preachers accusing him of all kinds of things when they never read his books. And he stood there and just took question after question and responded in love. By the time he was done, he'd won them all over. He didn't defend himself. He just referred to the scriptures. He loved them. And he made this statement. He said, if I am... He said, I, I work as hard as I can to never step out of love because the moment I step out of love, he said, I know that's why I've walked in health for all these years. He walked in health for over 50 years. And he attributes not so much to his faith but to walking in love because that fulfills the commandments. We saw also that walking in love is required before God's presence is going to come. It affects God's presence coming. Unity together affects power of God in a church. So it's vitally important, but we need understanding about what that is. All right. So we're seeing here that, that, that what he's talking about, first of all, here in Romans, is not being vengeful. Not, see, notice revenge is based on me, satisfying me, my rights, my hurts, making me feel better because I see you get fried. Make him, and there's a part of it that does. It just feels good to see them get what they deserve. But it's to our flesh, not to our spirit. Because we have God's nature on the inside of us. God's not vengeful. Aren't you glad? Okay. Now let's go on. So we're never to respond to evil for the purpose of venging ourselves. Let's go to James 4 and see why. I made mention of it, but I want to show you here. Here's one of those places where it talks about judge or not judge. James 4, verse 11. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Oh, boy. <laughs> he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now let's stop there and give a little bit of understanding of what he's talking about here. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. The, the word for judge here, and by far the most prominent word for judge in the New Testament is the Greek word krino, K-R-I-N-O. And it has a very broad range of meanings. It means everything from sitting in judgment like a judge and meeting out the punishment for something done wrong on the one hand to analyzing and esteeming and understanding something on the other hand. So that's why you'll see the word judge translated in the New Testament in different contexts. 
Sometimes it's in the context of, of, of judging somebody for, what, for the purpose of giving punishment as, as punishment for what they've done wrong. And sometimes it's more in the sense of giving understanding or, 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 or discerning something. So you've got to look at the context, which is really what we're doing today, of where this word is used. So here's the context of this word here. Notice what he's talking about. Don't speak evil of another brother. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother, so we've got to figure out which one this is, speaks evil of the law and judges the law. It's better to say speaks evil, uh, speaks, um, judges under the law or is passing out judgment based on the law. But if you judge the law, if you judge based on the law, you're not a doer of the law, but you put yourself in the place of the judge. So the, the meaning of crino here, the meaning of judge that he's using here is that of the, the right of a judge to not only hear the evidence, but then to pass sentence for punishment on what this person did wrong. And what he's saying here, when it comes to your brethren, you don't have that right to do it because when you do that, you step in the role of not somebody who's understanding the law and doing the law. You've now put yourself in the place of someone who enforces the law. And so the word judge here is the word of condemn. Want to see punished. Not only want to see punishment, I decide what the punishment is and help get it there. And sometimes that's with our words because he talks about speaking evil of. And evil, the speaking of evil is what comes out of your heart. Because you can speak the truth about somebody, but can be speaking evil about them. Because it's not the truth spoken in love. Ephesians 4 says, their body is built up by the truth spoken in love. But 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I think it is, or 4, says that the letter of the law, truth alone, kills without the spirit that's behind it, which is God's heart. And we'll see what that is in a minute. And so when we speak evil of a brother, what makes it evil is the motive of our heart to impugn their reputation, to get back at them, to hurt them. That's speaking evil, even though what we say about them, may, they may actually have done. It's the motive of our heart that makes it evil. And when you do that, you put yourself in the role of the judge passing judgment and then you're administering the punishment by affecting their reputation. Do not speak evil of one brother. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law or under the law and judges the law. If you judge the law, mean pass judgment under the law, if you're standing in the place of the judge, you're not a doer of the law, you've placed yourself in the role of the judge himself. And here's the answer, verse 12. There's only one lawgiver who is able to judge, to save, and to destroy. Who are you to step into that role with one another? So we're not to judge for the purpose of passing judgment upon or punishment upon or condemnation upon. Romans 14. 
Verse 1, pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may... Remember 1 Corinthians. Those are good things to do, but that's not what we're talking about. Look at this. Receive one who's weak in faith and not to disputes over doubtful things. For one who believes that he made all things, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. I'll explain that in a minute. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or fall. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One of a person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord. He who gives thanks to God, he does not eat to the Lord. He does not eat. He gives God thanks. No one lives to himself and no one dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose again and lived again that he may be Lord of both the living and the dead. Why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, do not, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Now the judgment he's talking about here specifically was about the issue of whether or not it was okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols or not. Or some people just think, you know, I just need to eat vegetables. What he's talking here is about spiritual maturity. New believers would hear, find out, you know, because the practice in those days, especially in, where, where in Corinth and in Philippi, which were, had been Greek, they were Greek societies, is that they had temples and animals were brought there to be sacrificed just as they had been in Jerusalem to God's temple. And when they sacrificed the animal, they would take the meat and they'd sell it in the marketplace. Well, one of the controversies in the early church is if you go to visit somebody in their house and they give you, you know, a nice thick sirloin steak or a big piece of roast beef, better be careful, I'll lose some of you here. <laughs> and the question, well, I don't know. If, if this meat was sacrificed to idols, I better not eat it because if I eat it, am I participating in that pagan sacrifice? And elsewhere, Paul says, look, when we give thanks for it, this is what's behind our giving grace. When we give thanks for it, we're acknowledging whether it was originally came from a temple or somewhere else, God's the one that's provided it. And when you recognize God's the source of it, that sanctifies it. Paul says, I know that because I've walked with the Lord enough. But he says, if my brother sitting next to me gets all nervous, says, oh my goodness, I don't know whether this cane was sacrificed from an idol or not. He said, I won't eat the meat. Because if I eat that meat, even though I know it's okay for me, I'm going to encourage him to do it. And if I encourage him to do it in violation of his conscience, it's sin to him because he's violated his conscience. See, sin in the Bible, in the New Testament, is a whole lot stricter than it was in the Old Testament. It's your conscience that guidance what's sin or not. Unless your conscience is so seared over you can't tell anymore. What Paul's talking about here is not judging somebody because they're not as spiritually experienced or further along in their development as you are. And looking down and saying, wow, I know I can eat meat because I've given thanks for it. 
come on, you're a turkey because you don't know that yet. Or maybe some other meat. <laughs> so he's talking about spiritual maturity here. Not judging, I know more than you do. I've been around more than you do. I know more word than you do. I can pray better than you do. I can worship better than you do. He says that kind of judgment's wrong. Because we're all His servants. And who am I to judge your progress with God by comparing your progress to my progress? Because all of us are going to stand before the final judgment seat. So that's the context he's talking about here. We're not to judge one another as judge of the law. We're not to judge one another from the point of, you know, where your level of maturity is in my life for the purpose of passing judgment on you. 1 Corinthians 4. Just helping you at all? Verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is how Paul saw himself. Moreover, it is required of steward that we be found faithful. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. They had been, the letters that they had written to him had been judging that he was not as spiritual as they were. Or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Now, we're not going to have time to get there today, but in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about judging yourself. So what's the scoop there? Well, obviously, there's a different context there. He's talking about judged for faithfulness. Verse 4, For I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. For he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before it's time until the Lord comes. That's good advice. But about what? For both for we who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart, then each man's praise will come from God. He's talking about judging others for their faithfulness, even judging your own faithfulness. Paul says, I don't even judge my faith. I don't know anywhere where I failed, but by that I can't tell for sure because there may be something inside of me Christ brings out I don't know yet. So he's talking about evaluating us as Christians and how faithful we are for the purpose of judgment, final judgment, because Christ's going to do that. That belongs to him alone. Go to Matthew 7. Well-known one. Verse 1. Judge not that you not be judged. Well, now we're told not to judge. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. That's a good test right there. And with the measure you use in that judgment, it will be measured back to you. So why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't consider the plank that's in your... Some translations say the splinter in your brother's eye, and that's important because a splinter came from the same plank. but you don't consider the plank that's in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? That's the judgment he's talking about here. Let me straighten you out. I see what's wrong with you. Let me fix you. 
And we're really sophisticated at this because sometimes we just do it by praying for you. Let me pray for you. God, open the eyes of that stupid person that they can see what they're doing. They can see how vengeful they are to me. I don't think God even hears those things. Now look what he's talking about here. Because he's talking about when we judge one another for the purpose of helping them. All right? That sounds good, but that's not the motive. How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, there's a plank in your own eye. Here as it is, verse 5. You hypocrite! What's a hypocrite? Someone who likes to look outwardly as if they're one way, but inwardly they're something else. Someone that wants to look outwardly righteous and holy, but inwardly, that's not the way they really are. Their motives inside are different. Here's an example of this. When we're looking in our brother's eye to pull that defect out, when we're looking in their life to pull that defect out, why are we doing that? Is it because it makes us feel better about ourselves to see what's wrong with other people? Oh, don't look at me in that tone of voice. Our flesh likes to feel good about where we are by associating with other people that are where we are or are worse. Because we compare ourselves with other people to judge where we are, which Paul just said not to do that. So one of the reasons we go around inspecting other people's eyes to see what's in them is it does two things. It takes our eyes off of us in looking at what's in our life. And then we feel so wonderful when we've identified a problem in somebody else's life. But what he's saying here is what helped you to see that splinter in the other person's eye is in order to see it, you had to look right down the surface of a plank of wood that was in yours. What made you sensitive and irritated by that fault in that other person is it identified that fault in you. I discovered this one time by just thinking about, you know what, there's some things some people do that really get under my skin, and then that same person may do something else and doesn't bother me at all, and they're both wrong. Why would one thing they do wrong not bother me at all, and another thing just get right under my skin, and I begin to go to God and say, what's the difference? And the Lord says, the difference is why it upsets you. The reason you get upset is because it's reminding you of what you got in you. That's why you've got to get it out of their eye because it's a mirror to you. So I've learned the things that other people's faults that just that get my flesh stirred up. Now, there's some things that stir my spirit up. That's different. But get my f- flesh always wants to get back, point out, embarrass. Those that always cause me, I've learned to say, all right, if that's upsetting me so much, there's something off in here. That's a, at least a yellow light to slow down and find out there was a situation not long ago where I was handling a situation and, and, and I was headed in the right course and then I found out some other information and now I got angry about the situation. Instead of just doing what was right to deal with it, I'm now angry. And I don't... I, 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 it's like I, was, and I was angry because it had hurt somebody else. It wasn't even at me. And I was angry, but I guess I was embarrassed because somehow I let it happen. I felt responsible. And so I just want to, I want to march in with, you know, the fire of God and all the stuff he said we're not supposed to do. 
And someone spoke to me about the situation, and what they said ticked me off because they were suggesting I handle it a different way, and I didn't want to. But the fact that it made me upset sent a warning off in me. Something's wrong. If, see, if I'm not willing to listen to counsel, I may not agree with it, but I'll at least listen to it. But when I start arguing with it out of my flesh, that's because I'm trying to deflect what's wrong in here. I want to justify what I want to do, not what God says to do. And I can't afford to do that as a pastor. I we, none of us can afford to do it. So I had to stop and say, God, I need to pray and find out what's wrong. Something's wrong in me. And when I, the moment I did that, he began to open my eyes and show me how I had added my flesh into this situation. What I wanted to do was right, but my flesh was now added into it, and that profaned it. That polluted it. We'll see that in a few minutes. No, we may not. We may have to finish this next week. All right, let's move on. Remove, first remove the, the, the plank from your eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Okay. Now, in the same discourse, let's go over to verse 15. So we're told not to judge. But here's Jesus in the same message says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by your, their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes and figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit and every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit you will know them. He's talking about judging, discerning. Remember we saw in Philippians, Paul says, I pray that your love would abound more and more in full knowledge and in moral discernment. Well, what's the discernment here? Here he's telling us we are to be judges, but judges of what? Judges of the fruit. He's talking about discerning when somebody's speaking into our lives, when someone's preaching, when someone's bringing God's word, when someone's trying to affect our lives, speak into our lives, to have discernment of where they're coming from. What's the motive of their heart? Because he says, look, beware of false prophets. They're going to come and prophesy, but you need to have a discernment to know whether they're speaking God's heart or they're speaking some other heart. So there are things we're to judge. And notice we do it by their fruits. But notice, I never saw this until this morning. This is connected with verse 21, because Jesus says that's what he does. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus says, I discern not based on what you say, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. I discern based on your fruit. So the very thing he's telling us to do is what he does. So we are to discern the motives behind people that are depositing things in our lives. Why well, you've got to be very careful who you watch on TV, on Christian TV. Very careful. I'll be very frank with you. I don't watch much of it. There's some people I'll watch, but I don't just let it on because they're not very discerning in most cases about what they put on there and where they come from. I'm not talking about everybody, but there was somebody on just the other day and I know what was going on in their life. Rapid sin, and yet they still put them on TV. 
Why? Because they're anointed. Popular creates ratings. You've got to discern who you're allowing speaking into your life. Ed Cole has gone home to be the Lord who started the Christian Men's Network 20-some years ago, maybe more than that now. One of the things I remember, these little sayings, one of the things he said is be careful who you sit under because not only will you receive their words, you'll receive their spirit, their heart, their attitude. And that's supported by Proverbs which talks about who you associate with, you'll pick up their attitudes. Okay, we've got to move on. And how do we discern it? By the fruit in their life. Are they living what they're preaching? Do you see, not perfect, but do you see some evidence of that in their life? Do you see some evidence of the nature of God, the love of God, the character of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God in their life? Or do they say one thing from a pulpit or a TV station and do another thing in their life? Because you can get away with that for a while. So we're to discern the motives and the fruit. 1 Corinthians 4, I know we were just there before, but we're going to pick up after that. And you'll notice, here's a pattern. There's one place where he says, not the judge, and then a little later on in the discussion, he talks about judging. So back to 1 Corinthians 4. He's just said, I don't even judge myself based on to prove my faithfulness. Go over to 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you don't have many fathers. For in Christ I've begotten you through the gospel. So he's saying, I'm your spiritual father. Therefore I urge you to imitate me. For this reason I've sent Timothy to you. Now let's go down to chapter 5, verse 1. He's going to correct them now. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and such, such sexual immorality that's not even named among the Gentiles that a man is living with his father's wife. You're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. He's talking about judging somebody in their congregation who's living in sin with his stepmother. For indeed, as absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. I've already judged them as though I were present who has done this deed. I've judged them. He just said in the beginning of the chapter, he didn't judge. He didn't judge his own faithfulness. He didn't judge their faithfulness. But here's sin, known sin. Look at what he says. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. Now some translations that I have. He's done it. That their spirit may be saved to the day of the Lord Jesus. That's pretty severe. But notice, it's not to condemn them to hell. It's for the purpose of redeeming them, that person. There's two motives for which we can judge within the church. We'll see the other, one is protection, and the other is for redemption. God's correction is always initially with the motive of bringing repentance and getting things right. But if we never draw lines, then people just go do what they're going to do, and nope, there's never an accountability for sin, and then they can end up in the clutches of Satan. And what he's saying here is you haven't dealt with this. And if you don't, I'm going to have to. 
And it's gotten so bad, what you've got to do is deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Basically, kick him out of the church. This is where the Catholic doctrine of excommunication comes from. Out of the church, not for the purpose of punishing him, but for the purpose of giving him a taste of what it's like to be separated from Christ. So that he'll realize how the dangerous territories he's on and repent so that he can be brought back in. But without judgment, he would never have done that. He's going to continue to go down that road because everybody just loves him. Notice, it's not for their own personal, it's not retribution, it's not justifying themselves, it's not to make them feel better, it's for protection of the church and for the protection of that person. So that his soul may be saved in the day of Christ. Literally be put his body into Satan's hands so that even if he died, at least his soul would be saved. Now the good news is, if you read 2 Corinthians, they did what he said, and the man repented. And Paul now says, now you need to receive him back, because out there on his own, he's going to, get, he's going to be in Satan's clutches now, and you need to receive him back now that he's repented. You don't see a lot of that in the church anymore, do you? We love one another. But love draws lines but never for my benefit, never to justify me, never so that I feel better about myself. Always for the sake of someone else. I mean, parents, we ought to know that, except a lot of parents don't. I remember years ago, I better, one of my sons crossed the line. I don't know if it was his mother or something like that. I had to go into his room, and I applied the rod of correction to the seat of understanding. And he looked it up with me. I'll never forget this. He looked up at me with tears in his eyes. And he said, Dad, you haven't spanked me in a while. I was beginning to wonder if you still love me. <sighs> Hebrews 12 talks about God as the Father will correct us because we are His children. But He'll use sometimes, He'll use... He'll use us with one another to confront sin. Let's move on quickly. So we're to judge sin in the body, not for punishment. Let's read on. Verse 6. Your glorying is not good, because they were real excited about how spiritual they were. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that... This is, look at this. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. He says, when you allow sin not just in your life, but in the church. It's like leaven. You know what leaven is? It's yeast. You can't put a little bit of yeast in a corner of the dough and not have it affect the whole lump of, of dough. You can't isolate leaven because if you put a little bit of yeast in a corner of that dough and you put it in the oven, that yeast is going to affect the whole lump and the whole lump is going to rise. In Hebrews, it says, it talks about, about dealing with certain things in the church, and one of it is a root of bitterness. 
So don't allow a root of bitterness by which many will be defiled. Bitterness. Undealt with bitterness. Undealt with unforgiveness. This is sin within our midst that becomes contagious. It affects attitudes, and attitudes become contagious. Dissatisfaction. When, someone, when it gets in someone's heart, they start seeing things in a different light. It's as if they put different colored glasses on. Things that they loved yesterday are now they seeing the faults in today. Especially other people. Especially leaders. Even whatever. Because it gets in... That's why Proverbs says, I've told you over and over, guard your heart with all diligence. From what? A little leaven. Pride, envy, bitterness, disappointment, unforgiveness... All of this is leaven that Satan wants to sow in our hearts because if he can sow it in my heart or your heart and it begins to expand and grow, it will begin to affect other people's attitudes. And that's how Satan works to divide and to separate. Why? For the purpose of keeping the presence of God out. He loves us to come to church. He just doesn't want the power of God here. He loves us thinking this is it. This is all there is. This is the best there is. There's no power in my life out there. I've got overwhelming circumstances that there's no answer to, but I come to church and I learn to tolerate that difference. No. The power of God that's here ought to be affecting our lives and the people's lives around us. But it can't when these things are going on. And so they must be addressed. They must be judged. They must be dealt with for the purpose not of getting back at, not of getting even with, but for the purpose of protection. and for the purpose of redemption for, the, for where it is given. That has to be the motive. One last thing we'll look at. If you go to chapter 6, you'll find there's another thing we're to judge, which is disputes among the brethren. Paul talks about there. He says, I don't believe this. You're going to court. You're taking the disputes among Christians, and you're going to court and suing each other before pagan judges? He said, shame on you. Isn't there someone among you who can judge these disputes among yourself? Don't you understand that in the next kingdom, you're going to sit in judgment over angels? So apparently where there's disputes that we have with each other, that, that Moses did that, that there's to be mature people in the church, like elders and others, who can help discern what the solution to it is, so that there's peace. And then he gives the ultimate answer. He says, if you can't find somebody, then you just give it away. It's better that you not be in strife than that you be right. One last thing we'll look at. Second Timothy chapter 2. And there may be others, but this is enough of a taste of what we are to judge and what we're not to judge. Verse 14. Paul is writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, who is the pastor of this church. He says, remind them of these things. This is near the end of Paul's life. Charging them before the Lord not to strive or fight over words with no profit, with no good to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent 
to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or discerning the word of truth. Remember Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 9 and 10, he talks about to not just abound in love, but also in discernment, moral discernment. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. We're to discern what we listen to and don't listen to. We're to judge it for the sake of what to let in and what not to let in. Their message will spread like cancer, or gangrene, some translations to say. Hymenes and Philetus are of that sort, who having strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. So Paul's saying to Timothy, you've got to deal with this teaching that you hear out there. Judge it. Address it. Because it's leading some astray, and some have walked away from the faith because they've listened to words that are outside that they couldn't discern. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So we are to judge the doctrine or teaching that we hear. So quickly to review, we're never to avenge ourselves. It's really simple. If the motive is me, don't do it. If the real sincere motive of my heart is the benefit of somebody else, then be open and consider that maybe it is something I'm supposed to do with the wisdom of God. But the whole point here is this. We're commanded to walk in love. To never return evil for evil. To not speak evil of a brother. To not judge a brother's maturity or anything about a brother for the sake of elevating myself and putting them down. But there are certain things the Word of God tells us. We are to be wise. We are to discern. In some cases, we are to judge. In some cases, they need to be corrected because they will affect the whole body and because only by correction is God given the opportunity to bring redemption and restoration. Our prayer as we end today is the Paul prayer Paul prayed for the church at Philippi. God, that you would cause your love in us to abound more and more together with full mature knowledge and understanding and moral discernment in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray that.